Um, we are going to be doing our scripture reading now. If you do not have a Bible but would like one, you could put your hand up and our Frontlines team are coming and they would love to give you one. Once you get your Bible in your hands, you can turn to page 828 or Matthew 22 verses 34 to 40. That's where we're going to be this morning to get us started. So Matthew 22 verses 34 to 40, page 828 in those Pew Bibles, as some would call them. And if you do not have a Bible, we ask that you can take this home. This can be our gift to you, this scripture. Let's read Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, if you are new to our church family, want to say an official welcome to you. Is this, if this is your first time coming to church, my hope is that this is your last time coming to church because we don't go to church. We are the church. And so welcome church. Welcome church of the city. It is always excellent every single Sunday to be gathered together to worship God, to learn from his word, and to get together and realize that we are brothers and sisters, part of the same family under our Father God and our big brother Jesus. And so it is good always to be together together this morning. Now, over the last few weeks, we have been in a series called Focus, where we've been looking a little bit deeply, and maybe not just a little bit, but intentionally deeply into the topic of technology, and how do we follow Jesus in this digital age, or as another author I've been reading calls it, Digital Babylon. I mean, how do we follow Jesus in the age of the cell, in the age of the cell phone, in the age of the digital explosion? And that's what we've been looking at. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the idol that tech can be in our lives. Last week, we looked at the, some of the opportunities of technology, and then today, we're looking at some boundaries related to tech. Now, always when I do a series like this, I generally get people asking, what are some of these books that you've been recommending to us? And so I thought this morning, before we jump into this morning's message, I put four books on the screen that have been really, really helpful to me in this series. The first one there you'll see is called The TechWise Family. This is written by a guy named Andy Crouch. Really, really helpful thinking about sort of a philosophy of, of our homes and how we think about technology. It's a short book. Uh, It's sort of small. It's about 200 pages, but it's small. So I'd recommend that one probably first, especially if you're trying to create an environment in your home, the TechWise family. The second book there is called The Next Story, uh, Life in Light of the Digital Digital Explosion. It's a book by Tim Challies. It's a few years old, but he does a great job talking about the theology of technology and how we can approach it in our lives. The next book there is called Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation. 
inspiration to follow Jesus in digital Babylon. This book isn't specifically about technology, but certainly addresses technology and how young people, specifically Generation Z, are following Jesus and how they ought to be following Jesus in our day. And then the final one there is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which again is not about, this book is not about technology specifically, but is about the ruthless elimination of hurry in our lives and how technology actually contributes to this hurry life and culture that we live in. Now, an an admittance right up front, what I'm going to present to you today, I'm not very good at. Okay, so I always want to make sure that that's the case, that when when we gather together, that I'm not claiming, you know, being the communicator, that I've got all of this stuff figured out. And especially today, as we've been going through this series on technology, I've been discovering and learning new things. And so today I'm going to tell you some of the things that I've put into practice, but much of what I'm going to express today are going to be things that I've learned or I'm hoping to learn as time goes on. With that, why don't we take a moment to pause? Those of you that are familiar with our church family know that I invite us to do this every single week, is just to take a moment to pause. Maybe this is the first moment in your day. Maybe you came out to your vehicle this morning and you thought, there's not going to be any snow, and then there's all this snow and you're feeling rushed. So maybe right now you just need to pause and invite Jesus to speak to you this morning. Let's do that. So Jesus, we thank you that we are gathered here today, your people, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters who are called to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to encourage one another towards developing a more intimate relationship with you. And so we thank you again for this time, and and we pray for this morning. God, I know that technology, God, for some of us is a blind spot. I know it has been for me in my life, and so today I I pray for a spirit of humility, not only for me, but for all of us, that we'd be people that want to learn and to understand how we can follow you in our digital age, that we can be a present people. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, some of us maybe have been coming into this morning, if you knew what the topic was, with a little bit of fear and trepidation, uh, because you're thinking, oh, boundaries, oh no, Matt just wants to like ruin all of our fun, because I love my phone, and I love the TV I get to watch, and so you're just going to be a fun ruiner today. Uh, That might have been some of our approach, Um, but I wanted to first define what boundaries are, um, because some of us are like, you think of boundaries as a bad thing, but boundaries are actually a good thing, and here's a really helpful definition of boundaries. Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend in their book, Boundaries, which is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. What are boundaries? They write this. Boundaries define us. They define what is me and what is not me. A boundary shows me where I end and someone else begins, leading me to a sense of ownership. Knowing what I am to own and take responsibility for gives me freedom. Boundaries are anything that helps you differentiate you from someone else or shows where you begin and end. 
You know, when some of us think of boundaries, we think that boundaries are solely saying no. And while no can be a part of boundaries, what we read here and understand is that boundaries, they define you, but then they differentiate you from other people. But in the case of technology, as we're talking about today, boundaries help us decipher who am I and who is that technology and what is the difference between this technology and myself? I remember a few years ago, um, someone on Facebook that I know made their status. I just wanted to offer an apology to everyone. I've been on vacation for the last couple of weeks, and I didn't have time to post pictures. And the idea behind that status was kind of like that all of us were sitting there kind of bummed that this person hasn't updated their status for a while, and therefore we can't see where they were or what they were doing. And I just thought that was so absurd. And that's a great example of why we need boundaries to say, okay, who am I? And then this is the tech that I use. Some statistics as to why I think this is important. 77% of young adults answered yes when asked When nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing that I do is reach for my phone. 77%. When nothing is happening, the first thing that you do is reach for your phone. You can maybe think of this. For some of us, we've done it in our car. We've done it at the grocery store. We've done it as we're waiting in line for food. Wherever it might be, what's the first thing we do? We reach for our phones. Second, in responding to, in what ways has technology made your life more difficult, 42% of respondents said, I waste a lot of time, and 40% said, I'm more distracted. Now, why I bring these things up is simply to show, if we are to talk about what boundaries are, that boundaries define us, and boundaries then also ultimately differentiate you from something else, I think we, many of us, if we're honest, could say that many of us don't have great boundaries as it relates to our phones, that defining who we are, who our phones or our TV or our tech is, and that therefore how we're different. We can't live separate from them. And so this morning, my, my hope is that as we explore some of these things, is that we get there, being able to differentiate who am I, what is my cell phone, what is my tech, and how are we different, and we're not the same. So that's where I want to start. So Number one, this is the first thing that I need to do before we start. And I read the scripture before to help us get there, and it's this. We must decide who we want to love and what kind of people that we want to be. Now, some of you are like, I just want 10 things to do that will change my relationship with tech. We can't start there. We have to start with the larger question first of we must decide who we want to love and what kind of people we want to be. Now, who are Jesus' followers supposed to love? Well, we read it in the scripture before. Who does Jesus said we're called to love? We're called to love God and love other people. If you love God, you will automatically love other people. And to truly love other people with the depth that we're called to love people, you also need to understand the love of God. And so do you want to be a person to start who loves God and loves other people? That's a defining characteristic. It's to be a defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus is a person that loves God and loves other people. Okay, so you need to start there. Who do I want to love and what kind of person do I want to be? Right, at the end of your life, you think about your tombstone, right? What do you want to be written on there? So you start there. Who do you want to love and what kind of people do you want to be? And then secondly... We must develop practices, habits, disciplines, and boundaries to ultimately that will help shape our loves. 
James K. Smith in You Are What You Love writes this, The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up. Through the formation of our habits of desire, learning to love God takes practice. What he is suggesting is really, really important. So first, when we decide what we want to love, we then need to decide, I need to have forming habits in my life, have boundaries in my life that will actually propel me towards my love for God. Now, many of us, if we're honest, the way that we use our phone and our technology, these are forming habits and disciplines in your life that are shaping you to be a person who loves certain things. And so why I begin here is to say, if you want to be a person that loves God and love others, you need to think about how our use of technology in our culture is either shaping your love for God or not shaping your love for God. It is instead shaping your love for someone or for something else. Last week, we, uh, we jumped into Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2, a little bit with James, and then before, right, where we said, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything, every weight that so easily entangles, and sin that clings so closely, and let us follow Jesus, who's the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of our faith, That is the goal as followers of Jesus, that we are pursuing Christ, that we are falling every single day more and more in love with Jesus. And your loves are shaped by your habits, your disciplines, the boundaries that you have, and all of these different things. So then the next question is, well, how do we discern habits, disciplines, and boundaries in the pursuit of loving God and others? And these would be some of the proactive ways that we can do this as it relates to technology, all right? So we first have to decide who we want to love. If that's God and others, then we have to look at, okay, what are the habits in my life that I can put into practice to help me move towards being a person that loves God and others? So here's some proactive things. Number one, pursue wisdom. Ask lots about tech before tech has an opportunity to ask anything of you. You may know this, but when you first pick up a cell phone, especially if it's an iPhone or a smartphone, uh, you turn it on, right? And the little apple appears and you're like, ah, you know, and then it asks you all of these questions about yourself. And you're like, I don't want to have to answer these questions. I just want to get to the home screen. But it's immediately asking things of you. Most of our technology operates this way. And some, sometimes it's to connect different pieces of technology to one another, to your singular account. But it asks much of you. And many of us allow it to ask much of, of us before we've asked anything very specific about it. Christ followers are to be a community and to be known as a community of wisdom. Have you ever thought about this before? Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, he's talking to his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Think about applying that verse to our use of technology. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Or how about Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 16? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. I was listening to a teacher a couple weeks ago, and he talked about in life, there are two kingdoms at play in the world. He says there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. He said there's only two kingdoms, but many of us create this third one, which is the kingdom of the inconsequential which is the decisions that I make have no consequences and I can do whatever I want to do. 
But that's not true. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And we need to ask the question, as I make decisions, as it relates to my technology, am I being wise and am I contributing to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness? Tim Challies writes, we need to seek to understand how a technology will change and shape us before we introduce it to our lives. We cannot afford to be so shallow as to think that we can enthusiastically embrace a new technology without eventually suffering from at least some of its drawbacks. We can almost always see the immediate benefits, but we are wise to dig deeper, looking for the inevitable consequences. He recommends these four questions before purchasing a piece of tech to ask of them. These are the four questions. They're not on the screen. Why were you created? What is the problem to which you are the solution, and whose problem is it? What new problems will you bring? You know, sometimes we don't think about that. What's the new problem that this might be introducing into my life? And then finally, what are you doing to my heart? If our hearts are shaped by our habits, our disciplines, and the boundaries, how is it shaping our hearts? Secondly, be cautious of technology's easy everywhere promise. Easy everywhere promise. Isn't this really the purpose of a lot of technology, especially consumer technology, is to make things easier? And many of us are like, this is great. I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to do this. I can set you know, my temperature for my phone. Like I'm not even at my house, but I can set the temperature for my house on my phone. Isn't this great? It's easy everywhere. But the problem that many of us understand, if we go a little bit deeper, is to understand that easy everywhere isn't real life. And it's certainly not discipleship to Jesus. Here is what Jesus said in Luke 9, verses 23 to 25. He said, He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What we need to understand is that following Jesus is not easy. It's not easy. And therefore, we need to encourage disciplines in our lives and say no to things of tech if it's nudging us towards an increase of dependence on an easy way of life. Because if you're being trained that everything ought to be easy and there should be no suffering in my life and no drat, this thing isn't working anymore, and oh, what am I going to do now? That's not going to shape you into being a person of maturity, of discipline, these various characteristics. Three, for parents. And I know people are particularly um, defensive as it relates to their parenting, but the more I'm reading on this, the more I'm convinced. And so you can be mad at me and the reading that I'm doing, but here you go. For parents, delay the introduction of screens into your children's lives, and when you do... Set limits and model for them a healthy relationship with technology. Here are some stats. 65% of parents believe parenting is more difficult today because of technology and social media. 49% of parents strongly agree that their family doesn't know how to have a conversation anymore because of phones and devices. Half of families 
admit, we don't know how to have a conversation anymore. You know, it takes the average conversation about seven minutes to truly get deep. You think about how distracted we can be with our use of technology. And families, 50% of families are saying, we don't know how to have a conversation anymore because of our use of technology. So first, delay and set limits. You and I know this. Most screen-based activities require very little of the consumer. And as a result, they make the world far too simple. Right? When you are sitting there in front of a screen and you think of uh, children's shows, and again, you can study the psychology. There are psychologists that are working for entertainment industries to help them make the children's shows more addictive for our kids. And when you sit your child in front of a television, it's far too simple. Children, especially in the early years, are, are created in such a way that, did you know, for example, between the ages of 5 and 10 is the best time that a child could learn another language. After 10 years old, they've already developed all of these really interesting pathways in their brain that make it increasingly more difficult for them to learn another language. So in 5 to 10, they're soaking up everything in the world, and they're soaking up the habits and disciplines that we offer them. So when we say, here, sit in front of the television, take in this very simple thing, we're actually at the very same time stealing and robbing them from developing characteristics, habits, and an ability to not get really bored easily. Andy Crouch writes this, the more you entertain children, the more bored they will get. The problem, as with so many short-term solutions, is that solving the immediate problems requires leaving bigger problems unsolved and actually makes the bigger problem worse. Uh, Andy Crouch actually said they didn't introduce a television into their children's life until they were 10. And he said by the time that they were 10, they weren't all that interested in the TV. Because they developed other things. I'm going to read. I'm going to draw. I'm going to do all of these other things that are fully embodied. Like think about learning how to play a guitar. Right? If you've only been dis disciplined and discipled to watch a TV, how difficult will learning how to play a guitar be? Especially when you get calluses on your fingers. You're going to be like, well, this isn't right. And kids are like little sponges. They soak up everything. But then connected to this point is also that parents need to health model a healthy relationship with tech. 62% of parents check their phone within the first hour of the morning. And if we want our kids to have a healthy relationship with tech, we have to model it for them. Right? Like, I understand the hypocrisy because I've done it so much when I'm like, guys, you can't watch TV right now, but there I'm sitting on my phone. Or think about this fact, and you're seeing it, and I've done it myself countless times, where my kids are asking me to play with them, and I'm like, yeah, just a second. What am I doing? Scrolling. Is that meaningful? Is that helpful? Likely not. And we just have to be honest about this. Uh, something that we did in our family a couple of years ago is we said, okay, as best we can, no TV any day of the week until Saturdays. And then on Saturdays, we're only going to keep it short, like a half an hour to an hour length of TV. Now, yesterday morning, we were really tired in the morning. We were like, can we go downstairs and watch a show because it's Saturday? We're like, sure. And then we slept way too long, and they've been sitting there the whole time. So I'm not claiming any form of perfection in this. But what I'm saying is that our kids are being shaped. And we need to be people, especially parents, that are shaping them in good ways, in healthy ways. Ready to go on? Yes, okay. 
Fourthly, strive to create an environment of courage. James 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you just follow the, the way that this verse is telling us, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, because why it'll produce endurance in you. We need to strive to create environments of courage, not just in our homes with our children, but as singles or as young marrieds or whatever you might be. Create an environment of courage in your life. So what does this have to do with tech? Well, courage and determination are more often forged in environments where things are difficult and where boundaries and disciplines are actually put into practice. This is another quote from Andy Crouch. Again, I just think his book is so helpful. A home where wisdom and courage come first, where our central spaces are full of satisfying, demanding opportunities for creativity, where we have regular breaks from technology and opportunities for deep rest and refreshment, where devices sleep somewhere other than our bedrooms, and where both adults and children experience the satisfactions of learning in thick, embodied ways rather than thin, technological ways, where we've learned to manage boredom, and where even our car trips are occasions for deep and meaningful conversation. Some of us are like, that's not possible. That's utopia. He goes on. This is the kind of home that can equip all of us with an immune system strong enough to resist pornography's foolishness. Um, a, a statistic that is terrifying. 60% of teenagers have received a nude image from someone on their phone. 40% of teenagers have sent one. Think about that. 60% have received. That's over half. 40% have sent one of themselves. So you walk into this high school, half of the people are involved in this. How are you creating an environment at home that help kids, one, discipline themselves around their phones, but then also when they see something like that, be able to say, I don't want to engage because of where it might take me. Like, this is serious stuff. Train your children in the way that they should go, the scriptures tell us. Five, this is so important. Find others who want to do the same. None of this can be done alone, especially in parenting when you have two kids who are constantly comparing themselves to their friends. Create a support system. This does not mean avoiding those who live differently, but it does mean that you look and you try to live differently. You know, I think the context of a missional community is a great way for these conversations to begin around, hey, what are some of the limits that you're setting up around your kids? Or you talk to the parents of your kids' friends and say, what are the, some of the limits that you're setting? Because if you are a parent, you know you've had that conversation maybe already where someone comes home from school and is like, well, uh, and you say, no, you can't. I'm sorry. Well, well, Johnny's, Johnny's parents, they let him. You're like, oh, thanks, Johnny's parents. You've really set this up for us for success, right? Like, or can I have a cell phone? No, you're eight. Yeah, but everybody in my class has a cell phone. It's like, you're eight. You know, like, I didn't have a cell phone until I graduated from university. Like, this is crazy what is now, like, the acceptable norm. And people are like, well, they're just safer if they have it. Really? 
are are sending nude images to each other. They're safer if they have it. Like it's ludicrous, really. So we have to find others who want to do the same. Um, In Crouch's book, he actually talks about even like parents in schools. If you're noticing that like, especially in the early years, you're finding that more and more is moving to tech. Like Nixon, for example, will come home and he's like, oh, I was on the iPad today. And I'm like, you're on the iPad today. Like, we don't really let you have any screens until Saturdays. What do you mean you're on the iPad today? He's like, well, there's an iPad in my class. Or when it's like a snow day or it's, they can't go outside for some reason, it's like we watched a movie. And we're like, oh, my goodness, that's like what we're trying to work against. You know, and periodically it might involve parents coming together who are part of the same schools and saying, listen, like, how do we have a conversation with our teachers where we say, hey, we're trying to eliminate the use of screens. Here's the background and the research to say why we want that. And here are the potential outcomes if we actually do it. But in the context of a church community and context of family, it's so, so important that we do this with other people. And then maybe you're sitting there and you're a young person, you're a student, and you're like, you also need to find people who want to do the same. Uh, Someone was telling me yesterday that um, an example of something that you could do in your missional community is for everyone to pull out their phone. And if you have an iPhone, there's that part in your phone where it tells you how much screen time you've been on. Like to actually then like pull that out and like in the middle of a DNA, like admit that to everybody how much time you've been spending in each app. Some of you are like, whoa, that's like too intense, man. (laughs) Okay, good luck following Jesus in our culture. Right? I dare you. And I, I can't wait. I can't wait, truth, dare, double dare, Trump promise to repeat, dare you, I dare you to everyone pull out their phones at their next DNA session and share with one another, if you really want to get real about this stuff, and share with one another how much time you've been spending in each app, and then set a goal for yourself of this is what I want to cut back, wouldn't that be great? That could be powerful stuff, man, okay, let's keep going, some of us want that. Number six. Um, And maybe some of us haven't thought about this, but it's certainly important as global consumers. Cheap for us often means costly for someone else. Consider the global impact of tech. And I don't just mean this with our technology. I mean this with everything that we consume. Cheap for us often means costly for someone else. When you walk in and you find a dress for $10 at Old Navy, come on, how could that have been shipped from the Philippines for $10 plus all the fabric that's required? Someone's getting cut in the process. And when it comes to our technology, we also have to be asking the same question. John Mark Comer in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry says this, We are an empire built on the oppression of the poor. In America's case, and many other nations, literally. What's more, we found a way to do slavery guilt-free. We like to think slavery ended in 1865, but the reality is we've just moved it out overseas, out of our sight and out of mind. You think about the mass consumption in our culture. Who makes this stuff? How are they being treated? Are they getting a fair and living wage? So before, I would say before we jump at the next thing, we have to ask the question, how is it being made? Who's making it? What's the global impact? Does it treat others as they are made in the image of God, as the Imago Dei? And would that slow down purchases? Would that allow you to accumulate less? and maybe more meaningful purchases that last longer and were made by somebody that was paid fairly. Okay, those are the proactive approaches. Let's go to some of the reactive ones because some of us are like, okay, you haven't really helped me in my current addiction. Here we go, okay? As challenging as it's been so far. 
So what about habits, disciplines, or boundaries for those of us who have already have tech and are addicted? The reactive. This is something we talked about in week one, so I'd encourage you to go to our podcast and listen to the first message in this series on idolatry. But you have to identify the idols of your heart, the things that you love. Maybe it's pride. I can't step away from my phone and away from email because my, my workplace will just not continue moving without me. You know, that's a, that's a heart thing of pride. So identify the idols of your heart. Secondly, this might involve a digital detox. Uh, 60% of people, I have a slide with some, some stuff on it here. 60% of people admit that they never take a break from social media. Uh, electronic Sabbath, do you take regular breaks from social media? Select all that apply. 60% say never. 21% say for a while, 17% have said permanently, 11% have said for parts of the day, and only 5% say one day a week. This is simply speaking about breaks from social media, okay? So there, here's some ideas. Take a cell phone fast. This could be one day. This could be one week. Some of you are like, one week? This could be one month. It could be 40 days. Here's the thing. You know what you need. If you're sitting in this room, you're likely an adult other than William, and he doesn't have a phone yet. And so you need to decide. You need to be grow up and be an adult about this. If you're adult enough to have a phone, you need to be adult enough to discipline it and yourself. And so figure out what you need. Start with a digital fast or a digital detox. Thirdly, I mentioned this in week one, but I want to go more in depth with it now. One hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. One hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. Let's start with one hour a day. 75% of people sleep next to their phones, and 90% check their phones immediately upon waking. In week one, I said that 50% of women feel less attractive through social media. So women, imagine the first thing that you do is that you check your social media the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning. How's that going to set your emotional equilibrium for the rest of the day? You're going to start the day with, I'm unattractive. That's not great. That's not a great way to start the day. Or you think about some of the other ways that you open up your social media feeds or that email, and it's like before you've even taken a step out of bed, you've got the next concern about, about what's going to happen in two hours from you or what you're wanting to handle now. Like, it's just not helpful. So one hour a day, some ideas. No cell in your bedroom, at your dinner table, or when having meals or coffees with others. I hope analog and digital clock sales go up this week from those who are part of Church of the City because they're like, I don't want to have my cell phone in my room anymore, so I'm going to go and buy a digital clock. They still sell them, believe it or not. <laughs> I told you a few weeks ago that I did this a couple, a couple um, years ago, and so my cell phone sleeps, sleeps in my kitchen and while well, I'm sleeping upstairs. It doesn't come into my bedroom. Keep your phone off until after your morning quiet time. Some of you are like, but my Bible app is on there, and that's where I read the Bible. Well, okay, uh, get your phone out, but try to keep everything else off on it until you read your Bible. You can, like, actually download what your plan is if you're reading a Bible plan. And now I'm getting really detail-oriented, but you can download your Bible plan onto your phone so you don't even need Wi-Fi access to access your Bible plan. Like, be smart about it, right? I think that's maybe helpful. Um, Thirdly, put your phone to bed before you and make it sleep in. You're like, you're the boss. Um, Harvard Medical School recommends two to three hours prior to bedtime being phone-free. So now doctors are coming out and telling us what, what we ought to do to be healthy individuals. Two to three hours before you go to bed. That's interesting. Then one day a week. 
i.e. a weekly digital Sabbath. Sabbath is a 24-hour period of time in which you are slavery-free. You know, that's what, what Sabbath really was, right? God gives Sabbath to the Israelites to say, you're no longer slaves. You don't need to work seven days a week. So what Sabbath, the best definition, I think, is that you do take one day a week where you're not a slave to anything. And that's going to be different for different people, right? Like, I could be mowing my lawn, and I'm like, I love mowing my lawn. God, you're on my lawn. Like, I could just love that. But for someone else, it's like, oh, man, like, I hate mowing my lawn. Like, you just take one day a week, and that means that you're intentional with the other six to get those things done that you do feel like a slave to, and to take one day of just having so much fun with it that you just love God, you love the people around you more as it sets you, yourself up for the rest of the week. The intent here is to discover and destroy data distraction, cultivate concentration, and seek solitude. One week a year. Only 14% of Americans take vacations that last longer than two weeks. 37% of us take fewer than seven days vacation a year. And researchers actually recommend one week of vacation every quarter. Now, I realize this is not possible for everyone given different, obviously, situations that you find yourself in. But where possible, taking a week off from your phone is amazing. I do this every single year, and I honestly feel so alive at the end of that week. Highly recommend that. Four, four relentless discipline with television and smartphones. TV. Friends, this is crazy. The average American spends five hours a day or 35 hours a week watching TV. So I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to confess right now. This is confession. I am going to watch more than five hours of TV today. <laughs> because there's a big game on, and I like the pregame, I like the during game, and I like the after game. And so I'm going to be watching a lot of TV today. But when I think about that, how many hours am maybe I going to watch today? Maybe like five, maybe six hours, okay? You know, get all up in my grill about it. I'm going to watch a lot of TV today. The average American, though, spends five hours every single day watching TV. 35 hours a week. That's a heck of a lot of time. This also from John Mark Comer's book about the addiction to TV. It's the one addiction, TV use, for which binging is still socially acceptable. People now have Netflix days where they blow an entire day or weekend on multiple seasons of the latest streaming phenomenon. Netflix reports that its average user watches a series in five days with millions binging 12-hour sessions in a day. When asked about the competition from Amazon Prime and other up-and-coming streaming services, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, shrugged. He said their biggest competition is sleep. And some of us are sitting there and we're like, he's not lying. Crazy. Secondly, cell phone. Actually, back to the TV thing. I was listening to the radio. Uh, there's still radio in the world. And I was listening to the radio. And they said that some uh, streaming services are actually beginning to explore speeding up television shows. You know how you can do this with podcasts where you're like one and a half, one, seven, five, two, two and a half? They're now suggesting that because people are like living with the FOMO of fear of missing out um, because they want to get in all these series and shows that maybe we should speed, like quicken shows so that people can get through them faster so they can get through more content. Think about this. And then the actors are like, okay, what am I going to be like acting at like 
a squirrel or a chipmunk's pace. Like, because once you get fast enough, your voice is just changed into little chipmunks. So, I mean, this is, this is the culture in which we're living. Cell phone. As I mentioned in week one, the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,600 times a day. Here's some ideas. Turn your smartphone into a dumb phone or get a flip phone. Or if you have money and are willing to sit on eBay, uh, there's something now called the Light Phone 2, which is like a minimalist phone. Uh, but they actually do still sell flip phones. Uh, you just have to go and be willing to buy one. And guess what? They're a whole lot cheaper than the new iPhone. But for some of us, this is like actually what we need to do to get control and to have boundaries and to define us in our life back. So you can get a, a smartphone or make your phone a dumb phone. How can you do this? Take email off your phone. I did this a week and a half ago, and it's amazing. I was like, well, I'm prepping for this, series, this message. I might as well try some of these things. And I think I'm now going to keep going. I don't have email on my phone. So if you send me an email, I'm not going to get it until the next time that I'm checking my email on my laptop. That might be like a day or two away. And I'm okay with that. Okay, let's keep going. You could remove all social media from your phone and transfer it to a desktop, and then you could actually schedule set times when you're allowed to check it. On your phones, you can actually, someone told me yesterday, you can actually set a time limit on how much time you're allowed to spend on each app. That could be something you could do. Interesting. Uh, for me, I recognized about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, as I'm researching for this, that the score was taking far too much of my attention. So I deleted the score app from my phone. And I don't know all the ins and outs of all the trade rumors that are going on in the NBA or around football right now, but I'm going to be okay with it. I choose to be okay with it, <laughs> all right? Because I was recognizing how much of my time it was taking. You could disable your web browser on your phone. Um, this is something John Mark recommends in he, his book. Delete all notification, including, including those for text. He said that he set his phone so that he has to unlock it and click on the text message box to even see if he has any text messages. Once again, you can do this. Will we take the opportunity to do it? Uh, as I said earlier about asking lots of questions, ask lots about apps before the apps have anything to ask of you. Um, and then finally, here's something that I've also done for the last, uh, since we got back from uh, San Diego, set your phone to grayscale mode. This actually does something neurobiologically that decreases dopamine addiction and addictive super stimulus. Um, I actually have a picture here of the difference. And I kid you not, like it is, it is stark. Like the phone is just less nice to look at and it's want, making me not want to go to it as much. Um, so this is something you can do. I'm not your tech guy, so please, I don't want to see a rush of 15 people afterwards. You can Google this and then disable your web browser, but you can do it. Grayscale mode on your phone will help. It's helped me. Then some just general home tech ideas, Wi-Fi and internet. Uh, James, our speaker last week, he told me this week that he has something at home called Kids Wi-Fi. It's a device that you can buy in which the Wi-Fi in his home shuts off at 9.30 every single night. And so that for his family and his wife has meant incredible time with his wife, I can only imagine. And then also beyond that uh, has also meant greater conversations, more reading, all these sorts of things. And if they need to do anything after 9.30 that requires Wi-Fi, they need to get passwords from one another in order to stay on it. Again, an idea. Uh, you can have a Facebook news feed eradicator. And this from my friend uh, Jay Brock, who's done some teaching on this. He says that he uses card block on Chrome, which deletes all references to the Kardashians on the internet. <laughs> and he added every variation of Trump's name so that he has a POTUS-free internet. 
He also uses uBlock Origin to block all ads, especially important around election season, and alt browsers like EpicBlock, which blocks all trackers. Okay. Everyone just take a big inhale, and now just exhale. There's a lot there. And as we're going to be transitioning to communion, uh, here's what I think. Jesus says something on the cross that I think is extremely helpful and poignant to us right now. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, he's crying out to his father on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, Jesus in this moment is, of course, speaking about those that are persecuting him. But we also know that Jesus on the cross is dying for every sin that you and I would ever commit. So what's he doing? He's saying, Father, forgive them and forgive people for the sins that they will commit in ignorance. This is crazy. He's dying for our ignorance. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they've done and are doing to me and to themselves. That's how all-encompassing the forgiveness of Jesus is on the cross and that the Father provides for us through Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And so Christ died to save and forgive us and free us from our ignorance. And that's how loved you and I are. Would you just close your eyes? You know, I understand. I, I read these books. I took in all this content, and I just began going like, oh my goodness, I have been a terrible father. I've been a terrible human. The first place I went in my mind was shame as I'm reading these things. And then you have to stop and consider what Jesus did for me, where he says, you don't need to keep punishing yourself for the things that you've done. I have died for you, and I've forgiven you. So you don't need to keep punishing yourself. And so each day, then we're just called to say yes to Jesus each day, to trust him that his sacrifice was full and enough to save us, to forgive us, and to give us life. And then so now each day, we simply walk in obedience to the one who gave his life for us. You are so incredibly loved. You know, with my kids, they make mistakes. And sometimes they make mistakes and they do things and they don't really realize what they've done in the moment until afterwards and they realize what they've done. And one of my kids in particular just goes right to shame right away and like wants to just get away from me because he's like, I realize what I've done and now I'm disappointed in myself and now dad's going to be disappointed in me. And in those moments, I don't want him to run from me. If anything, I want him to come closer to me and I'm willing to do whatever it takes for me to get down on my knees, to take him in and say, son, we all make mistakes. And I can forgive you because I've been forgiven. And I make mistakes too. And you messed up, yes. But Jesus knows 
and he sees me and I love you. I put my arms around him and I cuddle him up and I want to just hold him as long as it takes for him to know that he has not thrown away my love. That my love is constant. My love will not change. Every single night I say to my boys, I say, Nixon, do you know that I'm proud of you? They say, yeah. I said, do you know why? They know the answer now, so they say it. But they used to say, why? And I'd say, because you're my son. Period. And then I get to Cade's bunk and I say, hey, Cade, do you know what? What? I'm proud of you. Do you know why? And he says, because I'm your son. And in this moment, we can have the assurance that we are kids of God through Christ. So you're maybe feeling that shame, you're feeling that guilt, you're feeling that remorse. Come to the Father. His arms are open and he wants you and he loves you. And Jesus took everything from you so you don't have to feel that way any longer. The bread and the cup are going to be distributed. We're going to celebrate the death of Christ on our behalf, the love of the Father for us. So if you are a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you to take the elements, hold them, and then once they're all distributed, I'll come back up and we'll take them together.